morning again, Lindsley Avenue. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's a wonderful thought to have each and every morning. I want to take a few minutes to share some thoughts out of the very end of Matthew chapter 4 and in the first few verses of Matthew chapter 5. These are some verses that are commonly known as the B attitudes, but I want to focus on how they apply to the people that Jesus is speaking to. So I titled the lesson, Feeling Hopeless, because so many of the people who would have been in the audience Jesus was addressing probably felt rather hopeless much of the time. So let's take a look at that and then the prescription for our feeling of hopeless, I think is found in the words of Jesus. So let's take a look. Beginning at the very end of chapter 20, uh, chapter 4, verse 23, we read, And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. I've underlined that. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds, I've underlined that as well, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. I think to understand the importance, the real importance of the Sermon on the Mount, it's very important to start here at the end of chapter 4 of Matthew. And I want you to notice the emphasis on the people, the crowds. The words great crowds here in the original really imply crowds of crowds, huge numbers, huge numbers of people. So who were these people that are in these crowds? Who are the people that Jesus is speaking to here at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5? In John chapter 7, verse 49, the leaders of the people, the religious leaders of the people, had this to say about the crowds of people. But this crowd who do not know the law are cursed. They're good for nothing. The religious leaders didn't have much time for the people. And I think we find that's often the case. Once people get into positions of authority, once they get into positions, many times of religious authority, they don't have much time for the people. Sometimes even looking at them as the little people, right? With great contempt, these Jewish religious leaders label the followers of Jesus as this crowd who do not know the law. This would have been the common people, the people who were uneducated. Most people in the first century were uneducated, comparatively speaking. And they called these people the people of the land, the Amherets, the people of the land. They were always viewed as very unlearned. They were not thought of as holy or religious, but profane or wicked even. They were abandoned to sin in the views of the religious leaders. They were rejected by God because they did not follow the law the way the religious leaders thought they should have. And they were to be cast off, to be pushed away by, by men, by people. They even went so far as to say they would not be raised at the last day unless it was because of some wise person they were attached to. If you were a servant 
of a religiously observant person, then maybe God might bring you up on the last day or if you've done some service for him. The common people were simply looked upon with contempt by those who were religiously observant in their mind. Yet it was these people, these people, the religious people of the day viewed, viewed with contempt, these unlearned people that Jesus speaks to and spends his time ministering to. We can learn something from that. We need to make sure we're not looking down on people from some height, perhaps because we've been to church much of our lives, perhaps because we may think we are religiously observant, perhaps because we may think we know what's going on and what the Bible says about this or that. Where there are plenty of people, tons of people who are dealing with their lives day to day. I'm afraid that's probably present in some of our religious neighbors and in some of our own background. Jesus goes to where the people are, people who may have been feeling hopeless, and he gives them hope. How does he give them hope? The way he gives them hope is not through some psychobabble that you might find in books today or any of that kind of stuff. He speaks directly to them, and he speaks to them the message of God that we call the Beatitudes. So let's take a look at some of those. We read here, starting in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, seeing the crowds, right? Seeing the crowds. Another place we read, seeing the crowds, he has compassion on them. They were as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus shepherds them. He ministers to them by speaking the words they needed to hear. He went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now, it's kind of odd in a funny way. In the Jewish circumstances in the first century, the teacher sat down. What do we do? We do the exact opposite. I mean, I guess the last thing you want is for the teacher to fall asleep sitting in a very comfy chair. It also helps with our culture to make sure messages stay shorter than they might otherwise because the person speaking is standing up. He begins to teach the very people the Jewish leaders thought were unteachable, fathers of impurity, people who were simply cursed. He, he teaches them. What does he say? Blessed. Now we see the word blessed starting in chapter 5, verse 3. And we often think of that as a, a religious term, blessed, right? It means happy, perhaps some, 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 some translations may in fact say happy, but it means so much more than that. The word is the basic symbol of happiness identified with pure character, being the proper kind of person. The Greeks used it of the state of the gods. So in, in the people of the day, in the Greek world, when they heard this, they thought this is the characteristic of the gods. So if you want to be in a frame of mind where you are happy, content, like the gods might be, here's what you need to do. Who are these people who have this condition, this state, this frame of mind? Who are the people who are going to not be hopeless? So the clear recognition is, is that the people who are happy, who are content, who are blessed, 
Sin is the source of all misery and the way to avoid being hopeless of being in a state of sin or misery is that holiness is the cure for all things that bother us. Being in a relationship with God is what's going to be the basic framework for getting out of hopelessness. So let's take a look. Jesus begins to teach to impart knowledge. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word for poor is the exact opposite of rich here. The word for poor is the exact opposite of rich. This is the word used for Lazarus over in Luke 16. It describes someone who has nothing at all. Not someone who's simply on hard times who can't afford the best cut of steak at a restaurant. This is a person that doesn't have any way of getting their next meal. Blessed are the poor, but notice, not the poor in money, but the poor in spirit. The word used for spirit is often used for wind, right? But it usually means the whole idea of spirit within us. This is poverty of spirit that these crowds possess. And I think it's placed at the start of this series of statements Jesus makes for a reason. Because it puts all the following commands into perspective. You cannot fulfill the following commands, the following statements Jesus is going to make, is going to make by our own strength. It's only by the beggar's reliance upon God that any change is possible. We are going to change. If we're truly going to become the type of people God wants us to be, it's not going to be from my strength. It's not going to be something you are able to do on your own. It's going to be by relying on God that any change is possible. We get ourselves into trouble sometimes because, you know, we're often told, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Go out and make something of yourself. You know, that's not how we're going to succeed as spiritual people. People who care about each other and people who care about our relationship with God. We can only get there by relying upon God. And so when you are poor in spirit, when you're lacking in your own spirit, it's only by the spirit of God that we're going to be able to achieve anything. So starting off, that's how it goes. If you don't sense your own level of poverty, whether material or spiritual, you will never hunger and thirst after righteousness because you won't know that you need it. You won't know that you need it. And if you have too high a view of yourself, you know, I, I'm certainly the big dog. I mean, you know, take a look at me, right? If you have too high a view of yourself, you're going to find it to be very, very difficult to be merciful and caring to others. Take a look. Blessed also are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's another paradox. The word for mourn is used most frequently of mourning for the dead, crying out because of a great loss. Blessed are the people who mourn because they're going to be comforted. There can be no comfort where there's no grief. How can you be comforted if you don't feel a loss? Now that could be applied in so many ways. How can I have spiritual wellness if I don't realize that I have a spiritual illness? How can I be in any way filled and helped if I don't realize a lack that I possess? So blessed are those who 
mourn, for they shall be comforted. Sorrow should make us look for the hand of God and find comfort in a time of grief. Comfort comes from a word related to paraclete, which is often uh, used of the whole idea of the Holy Spirit. It's something that's cast along, brought alongside us, right? The comforter. The idea is that if you are mourning, if you're crying out in grief, people will hear your call and come to you. So if you're the kind of person that keeps these things on the inside, which I'll confess I tend to do, then you're not going to be having people come to comfort you because nobody will know that you are crying out and you're in need of help. So don't be stoic about it. If you are feeling hurt, if you're feeling pain, if you're feeling grief, cry out because we should all come together to help each other. Blessed are those who mourn because the ones who cry out who are in mourning are going to be the ones who are comforted by people coming alongside and strengthening you. So there's a first challenge today. If you're feeling hurt, if you're feeling pain, if you're feeling grief, don't keep it inside. Because how can anyone know to help if you don't let it be known that you need the help? God himself, of course, also hears your call. The next one, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is a, considered almost a bad word today. It was in the first century because we is, usually associate meek with weak or not very strong, or to be avoided. Well, one version I love says, blessed be mild people, mild people. The Greeks used the word about for outward conduct toward other people. They didn't consider it a virtue because they viewed it as people who kind of cringe back, right? Who, who are very mild, they're not very demonstrative, they're not very forceful. And to be forceful or, or very a strong opinion was considered the virtue by the Greek people, not according to Jesus. Jesus lifted this word to a noble position it really had not had before. In fact, the Beatitudes pretty much assume a new heart. I think that's why it starts out, blessed be the poor in spirit. It's only when we rely upon God that we have any hope of achieving any sort of relationship with God or other people. It refers to a blend of spiritual poise and strength, uh, a gentleness of strength. It's not very common today. If you were to look at people in the news, popular people, whether in uh, entertainment or any other field, you're not going to find many people that would be described as meek because it's not usually something that's associated with success, but it ought to be. As to inherit the earth, I would suggest the real solution to what that means is a new heaven and a new earth. Whatever reward God has, he has kept set aside for the people who are mild-mannered, who treat other people the way they ought to be treated. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here Jesus turns this base, one of the most basic human instincts into a spiritual use. There is in all of us a hunger for food, for love, and there should be a hunger for God. It's a passionate hunger and thirst for goodness, for holiness that he's talking about here. The word satisfied means to feed or to fatten the cattle. 
right? That's what it means. You know, you think of uh, feeding a cow, uh, you know, give them as much as they want because of what it produces. You keep feeding, keep feeding. You're going to be so full, you won't want any more. Well, that may happen at an all-you-can-eat place when you're thinking of food. I've seen some people at some of the pizza places that have a stack of plates in front of them. I wonder how long they've been there. They've eaten until they just can't eat anymore. I can't take anymore. Well, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for a right relationship with God, based upon being mild in spirit and mild in our actions toward other people, based upon having a recognition of the poverty of my spirit and the need for God to take control of my life, you will be satisfied, Jesus says. You're going to be full. You won't be able to handle anymore. The hunger here is of someone starving for food and thirst as someone who is dying unless they get a drink. So it really turns into a challenge and a question for us. In effect, it demands how much do you want goodness? How much do you want that kind of right relationship with God? Do I want it as much as a starving person will want any food? How much do I want that right relationship with God? Sometimes I wonder whether we, we, we want it sometimes on Sundays. I don't want it as much on Mondays or Tuesdays because it will be shown in how I live my life during the week. Do I live my life with the intensity where I will do anything to be in a right standing relationship with God? Or, oh, I haven't eaten in a while, so I'm hungry now. It's, it's really important. Do I want this right standing with God, this righteousness, as much as someone who hasn't had anything to drink in days? There's a lot of urgency in someone who's really hungry. There's a lot of urgency in someone who's really thirsty. Jesus applies that to the idea of having a right relationship with God. How much do you really want? How much do I show that I want? How intense is our desire for goodness, being in a right position with God? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The word here for mercy means the ability to get right inside the other person's skin until you can see things with their own eyes. It's almost like you have to possess somebody else, right? Get into somebody else's life and their current feelings to see and feel what they're feeling so you can understand what they're feeling. I can't do that in some kind of a tower looking down on the little people. That's what the religious leaders of the first century had done to this crowd. Jesus is out among them. Jesus is out in the crowd. He's feeling what they feel. He can tell they are sheep without a shepherd. And he actually speaks to them and tells them what God has in mind for them. It's a statement of principle throughout all the New Testament. And it's so important because it's so hard. To be forgiven, we must be forgiving. That means not keeping a grudge. Well, I'm not talking to Joe because I remember back in 1987, he did this. Right? Let it go. Let it go. What somebody did to me yesterday, to you yesterday, does not matter. 
because I don't want things I did yesterday to matter to God. I'm, I'm purposefully pausing here because this is a tough one I will freely admit for me. If I want to have mercy, I must be merciful to other people. If I want to be forgiven, and I do, I need to forgive my brothers and sisters here. Probably, if my brothers and sisters thought about it, they wouldn't have done or said what they did anyway. If I had thought about it, I wouldn't have done what I did or said anyway. So, God, I want you to be merciful to me, a sinner. I need to be merciful to all the people who are around me. It's only then that I have any hope of being forgiven by God himself. James 2 verse 13 says, Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That ought to scare all of us. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Do I want judgment without mercy to me? No, not at all. Please, I want mercy and not what I deserve. The only way that will come is if I show mercy to others. Uh, Jesus at one point said, go and learn what this means. A statement from God, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Much more than following rules and regulations, what God wants is the heart to be in each one of us that will show mercy and love for other people. And yet what so often do our religious communities do? What do religious people do? We have a checklist. Let's see. To be right with God, I need to have done A, B, C, and D. I'm in good shape. I've done A, B, C, and D. You need to do E, F, G, H, I, J, K. It's not that the things God wants are unimportant. Far from it. But they're not going to do any good if I'm not showing mercy and love to other people. If my heart's in the wrong place, it doesn't matter where my actions have been. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God has spent a whole lot of time talking about sacrifices in the Old Testament. He had. But sacrifices without the change of heart, sacrifices without the love we ought to be showing to each other, Jesus finishes the story that he had told as a parable of the unmerciful servant by a servant who had not shown mercy to a fellow servant. He says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I really, again, may, I might be the only person in the building today, the only person watching live or later who worries that that's a problem. It is a problem with me because I have, for an unfortunate reason, a long memory. I do not ever want to hear, you are not merciful to your brother and sister, therefore you're not going to receive mercy. This is one of the things Jesus tells crowds that would have been feeling hopeless. You can feel hopeful if your heart is full of mercy. I know I've beaten that horse a lot right here, but I think this is critical. 
if I don't do anything better this next week other than to show mercy to people, I will have done a good thing. And I will be walking closer to God by showing mercy to brothers and sisters. I suspect we all have room for improvement here. I know I do. He then says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word here for pure originally mean, meant clean, and it could also be used for dirty clothes that have been clean, right? They come out sparkling white. That's what all the advertisements will tell us. Uh, it was usually also used for corn, sifted to remove all the chaff. Uh, it could be used in the same way for an, an army that's been purged of all the people who were discontented, cowardly, unwilling, and inefficient soldiers, but a force of first-class fighters. First-class fighters. God wants us to be focused on Him and living for Him without other things of distraction. So what's my heart look Am I someone who's focused on God and living for God without any other additives, other things mixed in with it, right? It might be used in company with another Greek adjective of milk or wine that is not watered down. I saw something on TV a little while ago that talked about a hundred years ago, milk would often have all sorts of things added to it to make it look white, to make sure it didn't smell bad once it had started to turn. That's not what God's looking for in our lives. God wants us to have our hearts pure because that's the only way we will go meet God. Well, let me rephrase that. We're going to meet God one way or the other. Right? The outcome's going to be very different for those who meet God with a heart that is pure, that's been focused on loving God and loving our neighbor as opposed to having other things in there. You notice how I managed to sneak in what I'm hoping is our New Year's resolution? We're at the end of February. How are we doing? I propose simply focusing on two things this year. Two simple things that are so complicated. Loving God, loving my neighbor. That's a big part of being pure in heart. How are we doing? Think about it with me. The basic meaning is pure, unadulterated, unalloyed. This is why it's such a demanding beatitude, such a demanding statement from Jesus. You could translate it, blessed is the one whose motives are always entirely unmixed, for they are going to be the ones to see God. Is our work done from pure motives? Is our work done because we love God, because we love our neighbor? Or is it from motives of pay or appreciation? Is our service given from selfless motives or motives of self-display? Is the work we do at church done for Jesus or for our own prestige? And that's a temptation that can come to anybody. It can come to a preacher because, let's face it, some people get their kicks from having people stare at them, from feeling as if I'm the important one. Listen to me when, in fact, what the preacher needs to be doing is say, please, please look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the way we need to be focused. Same thing with church going. Why are you here today? Are you here to check off an item on a list? 
Don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Check. I did that. Look at me. Or are we here because we have a love for God and want to have a love for each other? Jesus hit pretty hard with that. What's my motive in anything that I do relating to God? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. It's hard enough to keep peace. It's still more difficult to bring peace when it's missing. It's one thing to stop it from blowing up in the first place, but to get peace put in the place when it's not there is really hard. The perfect peacemaker is the Son of God himself. Look at Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, that's all of us, who once were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that had been between the two, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man, one new people, in place of the two, so that, making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility between Jew and Gentile, Jew and Samaritan, was so great, it should have died the moment Jesus died. Anything separating us from each other, anything keeping us from loving each other should be put to death, just as Jesus was put to death, because we should be a new people, a people created in love to love one another intensely from within our world. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Posing as someone who was persecuted is a favorite stunt. There have been people that have actually faked being attacked in order to get sympathy, right? People pretend. But the kingdom of heaven belongs only to those who suffer for the sake of goodness, not to those who suffer because of things they did that were wrong. One of the great qualities of Jesus was his complete and total honesty. He never left any doubt to those who, what would happen to those who were following him. They were going to suffer persecution for the sake of the name, for the sake of the name. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you. Falsely, <clears throat> that's the key, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What does matter is that the bad things said of Christ's followers need to be untrue, not that they're actually true, and that they are slandered for Jesus' sake. No good waits anybody who deserves all the evil said and done of them here. 1 Peter 2, For it is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, is it if you, when you sin, you were beaten for it? I get drugged down to the police station because I did something wrong. There's no credit there for me to say, well, look at me. I'm a Christian. I'm suffering because I did this or that wrong. Different thing if you suffer because you were trying to follow God and do the right thing. So I want to suggest be hopeful rather than hopeless. When Jesus was confronted with large numbers of people on the margins of society, people who were called cursed by their own religious leaders, People who truly were without hope. What did Jesus do for those crowds of people? 
Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he talked. He talked. The cure for hopelessness is the word of God, which can give everyone hope. Because God is the giver of all hope. God is the reason to have hope in a world that seems so out of whack most of the time. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The way to have hope is to focus on Jesus and to make sure our lives are right with God. If our lives are not right with God, I really am hopeless because I don't have my life in the right position to be filled with hope by God. So I want to ask, are you hopeless or are you full of hope? Can you give people hope? The way to be full of hope is to recognize our sinful situation, is to realize there's no way I can fix the problem I have created for myself. Once I decided to live for myself instead of live for God, I crossed the line I cannot undo. But there's good news. There's really good news. God doesn't care what you did yesterday, what you did this morning. He cares what you do right now. And he's calling for each and every one of us to come to him if we're not a member of his family, to believe in what he did, to understand that he gave his son to die for you, to change your life from wrong to right, to repent, to be immersed in water so that you can die to self and be raised to walk as a totally new person. If you're already a member of God's family and your life has not been showing mercy, your life has not been one that shows you're living for God, to say, I need to get back on track ask God through prayer for forgiveness. If either one of those things describes anyone here today or anyone watching at home, please, please do it today. Get back on track and be hopeful rather than hopeless. The choice is yours.